Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is it is the best science you will hear for the next half hour. That's what I can say. Yeah, the best science of the week, all condensed into one nice and easy half an hour for you. Really? Yep. Yeah, fantastic. Um, <laughs> my name is Chris, and today I am going to be talking about black holes. Ooh, cool topic. Yeah, yeah. There's been a few like black hole-related news items and discoveries in recent weeks, so I thought I'd just do a bit of black hole basics. How do we, when they say they discovered a black hole, what does that actually mean? I mean, how do you find something that's black? Hmm. Yeah, there is an answer to these questions. Interesting. Uh, And yeah, there's some interesting answers to that question. Anyway, that should suck you in, I'm sure. (laughs) Manisha, what do you got for us? Um, So today I am going to continue my mini-series on how to best make, break or change habits. And we're going to be continuing on with tip number four which is all about um, the role that visualization and mental simulations can play in our success in achieving our goals. Brilliant. And we also have Claire giving us a story on how scientists have figured out how to make tomatoes taste again like they were in the good old days you remember those yeah those juicy oh yeah i remember the good old days days of Mm. tomatoes well i figured out (laughs) how to do that again so a better tomato is never a bad thing it's on its way um as is the rest of the show wahoo okay yes my name is chris and i'm talking about black holes. As I said, there's been a couple of news items on black holes lately, so I thought I'd talk about what black holes actually are and how we know they even exist. Now, the idea itself of a black hole, it isn't that strange. Um, The basic idea, in fact, it's been around apparently since about 1783. Really? Um, Yeah, a bloke called John Michel came up with the idea that you could have something that had gravity so strong that light wouldn't be able to escape from it. He called it a dark star. But they kind of gain new significance after Einstein's general theory of relativity told us how gravity really works and distorts time and space and all this kind of stuff. And that made it even stranger because, as you know, in Einstein's theory of relativity, the speed of light is the ultimate speed limit in the universe. So if light can't escape from it, it means that it is kind of cut off from the rest of the universe completely. Things get seriously strange inside Mm. a black hole. Now, so... Normally, it is believed that black holes would be created by collapsing stars. So what happens if you have like any really big star? Well, stars, you know, if they burn into their fuel, they tend to collapse. You know, because it's the fuel, the fire that keeps the star big and burning and shooting out. And when it runs out of fuel, it starts to, gravity starts to pull it in on itself. If a star is really, really big, then it blows up as it collapses in and a huge supernova. And then the core of it collapses down further into essentially just an atomic nucleus, and that's called a neutron star. So essentially all the protons and neutrons and everything else, protons and electrons get crushed down and they just become one giant nucleus that's called a neutron star. 
But if you have a star that's even bigger than that, even the power of the nuclear forces is not strong enough to hold it together and cool. it collapses down and down even further and further. So and that's what you get, a black hole. How Okay, maybe this isn't going to be like a good question because I don't actually know how big stars are. But w- w- like, would that only happen to stars that are like the sun? Uh, the sun is way too small. I think you need oh. to be about 20 times the size of the, the sun to be Whoa. able to be a black hole, um, I think, off the top of my head. Um, so, yeah, really, really big stars. But, um, cool. yeah, so the thing is it keeps cutting. As far as we know, it collapses down to pretty much a point. Uh, nothing will hold us up from collapsing down forever. So, And this is where, as a physicist, it sounds really scary because it means essentially the laws of physics break down at the centre of a black hole. But the truth is we don't understand gravity well enough to know exactly what happens to the centre of a black hole. And essentially, as I said, it's cut off from the rest of the universe anyway, so we don't have to worry about that so much. So there is a point called the event horizon, and this is a um, point that's not the centre of it. This is like a radius where the gravity gets strong enough that light can't escape. So that's the point of no return, and that's called the event horizon. And that you is get for all sucked in... into it. Well, you do get sucked into it. Yeah, for all Ooh. intents and purposes, that is the surface of the black hole. So it's not a real surface. It's ah, not a hard surface, yep. but it's the point of no return. So that's the black bit of the black hole. Interesting. Okay? So to give you an example of, of the size of these kind of things, if our sun were to be able to become a black hole, if it was compressed to become a black hole, it would have to collapse from its current size, which is about 1.4 million kilometres across, to a diameter of, of less than six kilometres. And the average density within that kind of that kind of space would be about 20 billion tonnes per cubic centimetre. So that's, a that's how much you have to compress things to become a black hole. Wow. So look, these are pretty extreme things, I guess, is what we're saying. And again, because they're cut off from the rest of the universe, it means that the laws of physics go all kinds of strange. There's a lot of weird stuff happening with them. People have studied them theoretically for ages, but for a long time, it was considered just a hypothetical thing. You know, how do we know that there are actually black so, holes like, out there? Nobody sort of, or have people speculated as to where they may be and things like that? Given, like, I'm assuming that people are quite clever and have mapped the sky a little bit. Well, the, <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is that there are ways that you can detect the presence of a black hole. Cool. So, yeah, it's no longer so hypothetical. Again, you know, there are some people who say, well, you haven't proven there's actually a black hole. This is indirect observation. So these are some of the effects of it. So you've probably seen pictures of things falling into a black hole and they get this kind of disk around it of all the stuff swirling around before it goes in. Yep. Now, things like, you know, the material falling into a black hole like that, would they, as they swirl around and go in, they get really, really hot. They move really fast. They get really, really hot as they're falling in. And so they give off a lot of radiation as they're falling in. Essentially, they give off radiation in the form of X-rays. And this is a sign. Usually these kind of X-ray bursts huh. are taken as a sign that something's fallen into a black hole. Oh, cool. So is, is the black hole the only thing to sort of cause something to orbit that quickly that it's giving off these x-rays that's what we as far as we can figure out yeah cool and the first well-known black hole candidate was a star called cygnus x1 that was giving off it's a star in our galaxy giving us a lot of x-rays so that was that was one of the first candidates for a black hole otherwise you can tell um black holes also from things falling or swirling around it so when things orbit something that's got a very very strong mass they have to move really really fast so what you can do sometimes if there's a sort of matter that's giving off um, any other radiation, like radio waves or anything like that, you can tell um, how fast it's moving due to things like the Doppler effect. So, uh, you know, that thing that where cars go, as they're going past you. <laughs> so things are kind of a lower pitch where they're moving away and very high pitch is moving towards you. 
when I say these things moving fast, they're moving near the speed of light around a black hole. So they're going very, very fast. So you can tell these extreme Doppler effects. Um, you can tell whether there is a black hole because that's the only thing that can make it move that fast. Is there, sorry, can I ask another question? Yep. Is there a way to sort of map these random things that are orbiting, but then it, it's not orbiting around anything? Like apparently, like I think if I were to look at a black hole, it would look like nothing's there, wouldn't it? Well, Kind of, so but I guess that's, like an- that, yeah, that's another way of telling it. It's not so much by, not, you know, it's, there's nothing there because sometimes these things are giving off radiation, but often there's also a lot of things in the way. Oh, um, and yeah, you can so tell you by, um, by uh, yeah, looking at things. Because we, we know how orbits work. We know how things orbit around fairly well at distances from things. Mm-hmm. And so you can look at the movement of stars and you work at the mass of something that they're orbiting around. One of the recent discoveries of what they call the middleweight black hole. So this one is... Like it's pretty big, but there are ones much bigger. But this one is believed to be two thousand two hundred times the mass of the sun, and it's at a stellar cluster, so a cluster of stars called forty-seven Tucanae. It's thirteen thousand light years from Earth, and essentially they just looked at all these stars moving around in this cluster, and they figured there must be something at the middle that's two thousand two hundred mm-hmm. times the mass of the sun. And well, if it's going to be that big, it's going to have to be a black hole because. You know, oh, just given the things that were orbiting it, for some for those objects to orbit it, the point of it would have to have that massive. You can work out, yeah, the massive yeah. must be at the center, yeah, cool. from this gravity. Um, other ways, wow, you can, people are clever. Other ways you can tell that there are black holes. Um, if a black hole is spinning, it is believed that it will give out jets of material at its poles. Now, this is this is theorized. That's, that's what would happen. Because basically we've observed these jets coming out from other galaxies. And this is the only explanation people can think of. There must be a spinning black hole that shoots stuff out from its poles. So that's another way of, of detecting them. And then there is, you might remember last year, there was a detection of gravitational waves from yep. colliding black holes. Again, this is like really big reverberations across the universe. And, you know, only black holes would be big enough to make that, that yeah, kind of right. big of a bang. wow. Look, yeah, so these are all kind of indirect, but there is a hope that soon we might be able to see one directly. Uh, now, it is believed that there is a supermassive black hole at the centre of our galaxies. Most galaxies, we believe there is a what they call a supermassive black hole. So the one at the centre of our galaxy is believed to be at 4 million times the mass of the sun. So that's quite big, and its radius is going to be quite big because it's so, so massive. Now, there is actually work underway to construct a radio telescope well, to basically coordinate a whole bunch of other radio telescopes around the world to make an effective radio telescope the size of the Earth so that they can actually see this black hole. Cool. So um, we want to be able to see. It's called the Event Horizon Telescope. So it's actually trying to visualize the event horizon of this supermassive black hole. Wow. It's been equated to seeing an orange on the surface of the moon. That's the kind of the size they're looking at. But if you've got a radio telescope the size of the Earth, then hopefully they'll be able to see this. And there's a chance that we'll get the first observations coming out this year sometime. So that oh. could be really cool that we will actually see a black hole for the first time. So that's, stay tuned for that that's one. That could exciting be exciting and a bit scary, but a exciting. little bit scary that right? these things are out there's there. There's a little bit. There's a, there's some sort of I don't know. I'm feeling a bit of, a bit of anxiety knowing. I that. look. I feel a bit anxious. Not so much that they're dangerous, but also that. Yeah, these are areas where we don't know what's inside them. You know, they're mysteries. They're like the walls of physics breaking down. Yeah. Knowing that these things are out there just so kind of they're violating super, everything. super unknown. And there's a lot of them, you know, it seems. Mm. Yeah. Very interesting. Something to help you sleep at night. So, so far, I've shared three tips on how best to break, make, or change habits on our way to achieving our big dreams and our big goals. So, these are New Year's resolutions type habits. You want to change your life. 
<laughs> and year. I'm giving you five easy in, tips in on February, how to change your life. It's February. You've fallen behind your New Year's resolutions. Your life hasn't changed yet. Yeah. And so Manisha is coming to your rescue with five easy tips. Yeah. So basically all of this came out of the fact that I had made all of these fabulous New Year's resolutions. I was going to learn Swedish and I was going to play heaps of basketball and do heaps of fun stuff and be a Harlem Globetrotter. And I am not, and I cannot speak Swedish, so I'm feeling a bit discouraged. So I started looking up how I could probably modify the, my attempts and how to how to better my attempts at my New Year's resolutions, so that I will actually be a little bit successful. So I have been sharing my findings week after week. Um, in week one, I discussed breaking up our goals into smaller, more attainable tasks. So if I want to learn Swedish, I first got to learn my numbers, maybe my colors basics before I can just speak fluently. And these sort of smaller achievements, if I set out little goals and I can achieve them, the smaller achievements are actually really good at positively reinforcing that behavior. So I want to stick to it and I can continue longer and I don't feel as discouraged as quickly. Then in week two, we talked about how to incorporate your goals and your tasks into your schedule. Because if you're not a morning person setting out to do heaps of running in the morning or your exercise in the morning is just not going to work. It's going to work for maybe a couple of days, a couple of weeks if you're good. But It's the- better because I'm trying that right now. Well, make it work into your schedule as opposed to just completely flipping your schedule. So this was the week where I discussed if-then planning. So you're going to create contingencies. If you do want to do your exercises in the morning, then maybe that's your contingency. If my alarm goes off, I'm going to get out of bed and not hit snooze. And that's the first step to actually getting your your goals done. Then last week, I touched on the concept of just keeping it simple. We want to avoid that decision fatigue. We want to eliminate our options and help ourselves by reducing the amount of willpower that we have to exert. So here, the idea is, basically, I think about it with junk food. If I don't buy lollies and chips at the supermarket, I won't have lollies and chips to avoid eating later that evening. So it's it's that kind of idea that you want to remove any of the options or excessive options out of your planning so that you can just stay on track. You have fewer options, you have fewer decisions to make, and you can stay on track. So this week, I'm going to move on to tip number four, which is to visualize each step. It may sound silly, but just like hear me out. A lot of the time when we set goals, we have a clearly defined picture of our end goal. So my goal with speaking Swedish, I imagine myself in Sweden, of course, uh, just, you know what I mean? Holding the floor, talking to all my friends. Accepting the Nobel Prize. Of course, of course. I'm speaking this perfect, beautiful Swedish. Clearly, I'm not going to get there overnight, but sometimes... Maybe not in this very exaggerated form, but sometimes when we do set our goals, we do get discouraged that we don't see outcomes or results sooner. So the tip this week is to actually visualize or plan in the effort, the work it's going to take to make it through to your goal. So visualize yourself taking your lessons. If you want to play guitar, for example, visualize the lessons that you're going to go to, the different songs you might want to learn along the way, the different chords, the things like that. So visualize each of the little steps. And this plays in really closely with our breaking your big goal into small tasks. So I think I literally visualizes in picture it like how do I how do I yeah, visualize how, yeah, do, like, how do I visualize a song? No, you're not visualizing the actual song. Maybe you can visualize the, the like the 
music video, but you can visualize yourself okay. playing the song. Okay. I can visualize myself playing like a redemption song or something on a guitar, or I can visualize myself speaking or saying my colors in Swedish or something. Okay. So visualize yourself partaking in the work that it takes to get to your goal. Right. So uh, yeah. visualize yourself practicing and visualize yourself doing the yeah, stuff. Yeah, visualize, visualize yourself attending a lesson. Visualize yourself putting money away. Visualize those little goals along the way and actually completing them. So putting it into your head that that's something that's a common occurrence and it's something that's an achievable occurrence. The idea here is that it's important to put our big goals into perspective. If you get bogged down by the fact that you're not a rock star overnight or that you're not fluent in a random language overnight, then you can get quite caught up in all of the self-judgment and all the negative comparisons. And it's quite discouraging on our self-esteem and it's, it's just hard on us. So it makes our goals harder to achieve. So instead, if we visualize each of these steps along the way, it's actually we've made it part of the process. We've made it part of what we're trying to achieve. So by going to your lessons, you're actually you are noting mentally that you're, you're working towards your goal. So even though you haven't achieved your goal, you've achieved part of it. This is what is known as process-based mental simulation, as opposed to what most of us do naturally, which is outcome-based mental simulation. So as the name implies, the process-based format, it, it focuses on the processes and the steps and really activating our minds to think about those intermediate goals. Whereas the outcome-based format is the type of thinking where we just visualize our final step and that's where we are all the time. Pham and Taylor from UCLA published a study in Personality and Social Psychology Bulletin back in 1999 where they compared the performance on midterm exams in two groups of first-year uni students. Uh, so for the week prior to the exam, one group was actually just asked to visualize good study habits, their daily persistence, just visualize themselves studying for the exam. Whereas the other group was asked to visualize them writing the exam or doing well on the exam, so acing it or whatever the case may be. Pham and Taylor found that when the group that was actually visualizing themselves studying, they were much more motivated and consistent with their studying practices than the group that just visualized themselves getting an A. Okay. So it helps you build those intrinsic motivators because you've actually done the planning part of it. You've already planned out how you're going to be tackling your task and how you're going to be setting up each of your small uh, manageable goals. And of course, the ones that had the consistent studying did do better in this study, but they probably did better because they had that consistent studying. So instead of trying to cram in one night, they took it in smaller chunks and they did it over a longer period of time, which is also how um, our goals may be better achieved. Instead of trying to achieve something overnight, we split it up into little small manageable goals and we do them over a longer period of time and it becomes more of a solid habit. Okay, so in terms of your Swedish example, then you don't picture yourself speaking Swedish and in Sweden, except at the Nobel Prize or whatever, you picture yourself learning yeah, Swedish. Yeah, exactly. So I can picture my big goals of, of accepting the Nobel Prize. That's a different kind of goal, but let's just stick to that for the example's sake. But um, I, can, I can picture that because that in itself is a motivation. That's where I want to get to. But I'm not going to get hung up on that. I'm not going to just stop there and say, if I can't speak Swedish fluently tomorrow, then all is lost. Instead, I'm going to visualize, okay, so I'm going to go to my lessons. How am I going to do my lessons? Am I going to do one at, say, an adult learning center? Or am I going to do them online? And then all of this planning 
while I'm getting geared up and getting excited for my goal, I've already done all of this thinking, which is then playing back into the decision fatigue. So I don't have to think about anything. I know I'm going to my lessons every Wednesday night or I'm doing whatever I'm doing. And um, it all comes back together. So it's part of the whole planning process. You can't just change your life overnight. You've got to plan it out first. Okay. So this helps you put those plans into place. And it also, when, you, when you're visualizing so you've already planned it and you know what you're doing. But then when you visualize, you're, you're really confirming that. So you can see yourself in, the, in um, a Swedish lesson or you can see yourself in a guitar lesson. And then you're actually there. And so it's a little mental tick. You feel good. You've done it. You've visualized it. You've done it. And so it makes you feel like, oh, okay, so if I think it, I can achieve it. If I, if I try hard enough, I can get there. And again, it's all of that positive reinforcement, keeping us on track and helping us stay motivated to actually achieving our dreams. I'm Maggie Darren Pocock, and you're listening to Lost in Science. So if you had to choose only three vegetables you'd eat for the rest of your life, what would you choose? Well, potato would be up there. Potato would be up there? Yeah, you can pretty much survive on potatoes. Oh, yeah. come on. Really? Hey, I've seen the Martian. <laughs> it's true. All right, but, but surely tomato would be close. For flavour. For flavour. Out of, out of all the vegetables, despite the fact that it is actually botanically a berry and a fruit, I would choose tomatoes. Yeah, but what is a vegetable anyway? Let's not go down that path. Yeah, okay, fruits, fruits and vegetables. If you had to choose, sure, yeah, if you had to choose three fruits and vegetables, I would say tomato. You know, you got your pastas and your sun-dried tomatoes and tomato on toast. Tomatoes are very versatile. They are. You eat them with a lot of things. Ratatouille. Anyway, it's actually the highest... Tomato sauce. Tomato Oh, tomato sauce. Dead horse. Yeah. It's, well, it's actually the highest value fruit and vegetable crop worldwide. Oh, really? I'll have you know. Yeah. Hmm. More very, than corn? More than corn. Wow. Anyway, and tomatoes are also a very important source of micronutrients for the human diet. Lycopene. Lycopene. That's know. right. Like a what? Like I know. I know you. You love tomatoes. You love planting tomatoes. You can still plant tomatoes at this time of year. Uh, depending where you are, um, in the in the southern parts of Australia, you'd be still able to get a couple of, maybe stick for the cherry tomatoes. But uh, further north, it's not quite time to plant yet. Up in the tropics, it's still a bit wet. But have you noticed, Stu, when um, you know you're eating your tomatoes, some of them just aren't that great. Your regular tomatoes from the supermarket, the ordinary Roma tomatoes, they can be a bit meh. They can be a bit watery, a bit flavourless. They're and a bit bland. They're a little bit bland. Yeah. Mm. And I feel like there was a time, maybe, in my youth when tomatoes tasted better. Well, look, there's a lot of reasons why that could be. Well, I, there I'll... is a lot of reasons. I'm going to tell you about one of the reasons today. Because when you compare them to these heirloom tomatoes that grow around the traps that you might buy, pick up from your local farmer's market, they taste different. They taste a whole lot better. And it's not just because you spend five times as much on them. You're not just convincing yourself. You're not just convincing themselves. They have more savory notes. They, the acidity and the sweetness is more nicely balanced. And they have some, you know, flavors that your ordinary tomatoes lack. So this, there's, been new research that's been published in science in the last week that explains exactly why these heirloom tomatoes taste better and how we can put more of that delicious taste back into our ordinary everyday um, Roma tomatoes and just regular tomatoes that you buy at the supermarket. I think, yeah, I mean, one of of the things is that commercial 
tomatoes, the ones that go end up in the supermarket and all that, you know, mass-produced tomatoes, are grown because they transport well. Mm. That's they're the tough. main reason that, yeah. They, yeah, they're that they grow them. They're, they're yeah. hard, you know, exactly. they, they don't bruise, they don't get squashed. Yeah. But so over with, many generations, these tomato growers are selecting for the good qualities of your supermarket tomato, which is firmness, um, size, yield, um, and disease resistance. Mm. So they're those things that they're selecting for, and they're not selecting for, for flavor. But in this, in this paper, which has a great name, it's called A Chemical Genetic Roadmap to Improve Tomato Flavor. I love that. I love the idea of a chemical genetic roadmap. It would be pretty um, opaque for a lot of people to be trying to read that roadmap. Anyway, they looked at 400 varieties of tomato and identified what makes them tasty. So these are all your heirloom tomatoes and some of their wild types of tomatoes. Mm -hmm. And they looked at their flavor chemicals, including the different sugars um, and sugar concentrations, the acids and the volatile chemicals. So one thing to note here is flavor is made up of olfaction. So what you can smell and obviously what you can taste as well which is what your taste buds react to so your sweets and savories so um, a lot of the a lot of the more subtle bits of flavor come from you smelling from, food yeah. even yeah. when it's in your mouth as well like you're still smelling it as well as as well as yeah tasting yeah it. yeah yeah exactly and and that's where these really small volatile chemicals come into play because they they make up pretty much what a tomato smells like which is in large part what a tomato tastes like. So from the 400 types of tomatoes, they took the tastiest ones and got a bunch of people to eat them and say exactly which ones were the best. And from this, the researchers could work out which of the chemicals, those volatile chemicals, were the most important in flavour and enjoyment. So they had 28 chemicals that were rated by the participants as most enjoyable and most flavourful and looked at the concentration of these chemicals in our regular supermarket tomatoes compared to our heirloom tomatoes and unsurprisingly found much lower levels in our regular supermarket tomatoes, so hence the lack of tastiness. What sort of chemicals are you talking about? Oh, so these are the these volatile, yeah. volatile acids and things like that. Okay. Vol- volatile meaning not that they're going to explode, but just that they, uh, they evaporate in air. Yeah. yeah. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, you wouldn't want them to be volatile in that way. In an explosive, in an explosive way. way. Unless it's explosions of flavour in your mouth. Yeah, well, yeah. that's right. Um, so knowing what volatile chemicals or aromatic chemicals to look for, the researchers then went back to the genetics of the tomato and then pretty much genome sequenced all these different heirloom tomatoes and identified the regions of the genetic code of the tomato that are most associated with these these volatile chemicals. And they found really small regions of the genes that are different in the heirloom tomatoes compared to the supermarket tomatoes. So these are called like, they're like these single nucleotide differences between the two types of tomato, between our heirlooms and our um, supermarket ones. And so now what are they going to, they're going to try and breed them back into the the commercial varieties. Yeah, so now the next step is to get our regular tomatoes tasting better. So they can either breed them back in using traditional breeding methods, doing back crosses. That's going to take many generations yeah. because you don't want all those adverse traits getting back into your nice, no, well, firm tomato. 
So they're going to use something called molecular breeding where they pretty much just breed the heirloom tomato with the normal tomato thousands of times and then they'll search for a particular genetic marker and find that one plant that just has that one gene type and then take that one. So it's going to take quite a while to do it. It's still yeah, going to but take so they're looking, looking for that one individual plant that's got all the good stuff and none, and none of the bad, of the bad stuff. stuff. Mm. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so they reckon it's going to take another three years to get the genetics right and for our tomatoes to get tastier again. So in the meantime, if you do want a tasty tomato that's got all those yummy, volatile, aromatic chemicals in it, then you're going to have to fork out a little bit more for an heirloom. When they're in season. When they're in season, so right now. But if you you hold on... Or you could grow your own. Yeah, you could grow your own right now, yeah. Or um, you can hold on a little while longer and maybe eventually our supermarket tomatoes are going to get a little bit more delicious. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook Uh, And if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost Lost in science. science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.